0: This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. The Turnbulls are one of Australia's most recognisable families. They've spent many years in the public eye and have made significant contributions to the country through politics, business and philanthropy. This week, I'm joined on the podcast by mother-daughter duo, Lucy and Daisy Turnbull, for a special episode about their lives, careers, and thoughts on leadership for the future. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, which is made possible thanks to the support of Salesforce. In this conversation, both Lucy and Daisy share more about their multi-dimensional careers as well as their respective passions in urban planning and building resilience in children. They also talk about how women across all facets of life already have the skills necessary to lead Australia into a better, more inclusive future. Lucy and Daisy Turnbull, welcome. I'm so thrilled to have you both here on the podcast today. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I am on Camaragal land and I pay my respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging and I thank them for their ongoing custodianship of this beautiful land that we are on. Lucy and Daisy, do you know which land you are on today?
1: I'm on um, Gadigal land, so is Daisy, I think. Yeah.
0: Nice. Well, we pay our respects to Gadigal elders past and present. As we record this for season five, we're in the midst of a long lockdown in Sydney. We've had it better than some of the other states. Our poor Melbourne friends have had a longer time in lockdown. Daisy, you've been teaching and homeschooling. How's that been going?
2: Um, Look, it's been interesting. It's certainly not the way anyone goes into teaching expecting they'll teach. and I don't think it's the way anyone expects to be going into school either. I have I think as everyone has a newfound appreciation of teachers especially junior school teachers because I've been dealing with year two maths and I had a very funny moment where my son came into you know where I'm doing my classes while I was teaching year seven history and and he said, mum, I need a pencil. And I said, I don't have a pencil, just use a pen. And he's like, but I don't have my pen licence yet. And I said, I don't care about a pen licence, just go. And my student's like, miss, you're really not respecting the pen licence. You've got to respect pen licences. You know, I worked hard for mine. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's been interesting. In relation to students, it's really hard for them. And I think I've spoken about the need for kids, especially teenagers, to have experiences and the impact of them not having those experiences, I think we're going to see the mid to long term impacts for quite a while and, and the impact of isolation for them.
0: Yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? And in your book, you talk about you know us growing up with bicycles and climbing trees and doing all of those things that are really important. Lucy, do you think that this whole experience is going to create a different type of resiliency in young women and young men? I suspect that everybody who's been living through this pandemic
1: will remember it for a very long time and to me there's no doubt that very young people little kids and you know people starting their careers i would say people under 55 are experiencing this pandemic very intensely because you know they're the people as we know from you know construction workers they're the people that move around a lot they're the people who you know in their daily lives it's all about moving from a to b school childcare jobs family members friends etc so It's had a massive impact on everybody, but I think particularly young kids and younger people. And we know also that this pandemic has had a very disproportionate impact on women. They have, you know, to the extent that there's a lot of casual part-time work done by women in society, they have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic. And you have other really serious things happening like the gender, I guess, chasm in terms of pay and opportunity, is, is has become very, very acute. And I think, you know, all these things will affect resilience in one way or another. You could argue positively that anybody who's been through this pandemic and comes through the other side reasonably okay, and nobody's going to come through perfectly okay, but reasonably okay, they will probably be able to deal with a lot of other weird stuff that happens. You would hope that. You can't be 100% certain, but you would hope that that would be the effect because they'll be able to, I guess, refer back to their experience and their resilience and their ability to just get on with the grind of life and putting one foot in front of the other. But I'm very worried about the effect this is having on young kids and people starting their careers in the middle of their careers. You know, Older people obviously have had an impact because they can't see family members as much and but to the extent that people are retired, you know, it doesn't have such an impact. And the other thing that I think is really important to remember is that there is a huge added impact on those who are unable to work from home. So if you think of healthcare workers, emergency workers, uh, construction workers, a lot of these jobs are very, very critical jobs for our society, as we've learned very much in the last two years, but their conditions and their terms of employment, don't let them, you know, lock the door and, you know, have a a lockdown life on Zoom like we're having now. And I'm very acutely aware that inequalities and imbalances have come to the fore. And we have to keep remembering that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think on one hand, there's been a greater appreciation for those essential services um, and the people that have to go to work every day. But like you said, a lot of those roles are disproportionately taken by women as well. So they're the ones going out and bearing the brunt. Also to what
2: mum said, while there there will be people coming out of this a bit more resilient or or with the experience, I think the one thing before COVID, a lot of teachers and, and like me were kind of running around talking about mental health. And I think now we all have a much greater knowledge of the fact that anyone can be affected with mental health issues, that anxiety and depression are on the rise. And we can have that. It's continuing to remove the stigma around that. And I think that it is terrible that it took a global pandemic to be able to have this conversation. But I think the conversation has moved forward. Now everyone has had a shared experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And even in a work context, the question being asked more often is, do you have an EAP, an employee assistance program? Do you have things in place for your employees? I know, um, Daisy, you're a volunteer with Lifeline, and they have been inundated through this pandemic, they've had their biggest days ever. What sort of pressure does that put on, I guess, not just an organization, but also on the volunteers? Like I imagine that must be a really hard process to be part of when you know that it's such a valuable and an important role that you're playing at the moment?
2: Look, it hasn't changed the experience when you're on the phones, but all it has done for me is made me realise I need to do more hours and, and get on the phones more often if I can. Another thing with the lifeline calls is, you know, there's been a huge increase in calls and a lot of it is people that are just lonely or you will see a spike in calls after whenever the most recent COVID announcement has been. So when Gladys Berejiklian, you know, cancelled the 11am press conferences, I actually felt as a teacher and also as a lifeline supporter, that was a good decision because, frankly, I have taught class at 11.30 and seen girls' faces just be so flat after Hearing whatever news there was. So I think that the routine of the way news was announced with COVID became so, it started to directly impact people's mental health so much. And we saw, and I saw that in the classroom and I saw that on Lifeline.
0: Yeah. And I think also in, you know, so much of Sydney, so much of the country, when you've been told to lock down, you have to stay at home, but there's no relief payment. For you you can't put food on the table because you're not getting the money in each week like there are lots of people that have fallen through the chasms and the stress that must come from that is you know it's on a totally different level and following the rules we all talk about following the rules but it's very hard to consider following the rules when you know your well-being and your family's well-being at stake Daisy, you're the head of resilience at your school. What sort of tips are you giving parents to help their kids through this period? So as Director of
2: Wellbeing, yeah, it's about focusing on the stuff you can control. It sounds really trite but it is getting outdoors and doing some exercise each day. It's getting some time outdoors even if you're not doing that for exercise. It's looking at the levels of communication. So it's talking to a friend on the phone or on FaceTime rather than texting It's making sure you're eating properly and it's trying to do things as a family. And then as long as you're keeping up those routines, it's easier to deal with everything else going on. And I even noticed myself a few weeks ago, I had a few days where I wasn't exercising. I think it was raining and I was busy and I just felt so much worse about everything. So I guess one thing it is doing is it's giving teenagers a chance to, in live action, practice things that work for their mental health toolkit and their resilience toolkit and figure out what works and what doesn't.
0: Lucy, as a parent, we're always trying to teach our kids how to be resilient, how to get up again after they've had a fall, how to stand up when things don't go right. Do you think the things that parents need to teach their kids now as we go through this are different to what you had to teach Daisy or what you know I have to teach my daughter? Um, Well,
1: I think it's a highly intense and adapted version of what we teach kids anyway. I think, you know, kids, their resilience has been sorely tested but you could argue that they could come out of this extremely resilient so that if they don't get to go to the movies on Friday because the buses are on strike, I mean, using a crazy example, that will not have the sort of like the massive negative effect perhaps having been through this for two years. I mean, there has to be some silver linings one hopes but I think the quality of resilience is such an important quality anyway and I think people have been aware of it but I just think the intensity of the need for resilience and the understanding the need for resilience and I guess a toolkit to build resilience and to you know withstand adverse shocks has to be understood and well developed and I guess communicated in a way that it never has been before but it's always been there like you know if a kid has a bad day at school, you just say, well, what went wrong and try to give them tools or ways of dealing with it. But this is, this is a
0: bit different to that. Yeah, absolutely. I want to turn to both of your careers. Daisy, you started in advertising, you've moved to education, you're now the author of one book and one book that's coming out. Lucy, you've done a variety of things from, you know, I think I've seen you described as an urbanist, a philanthropist. You've, you've supported Malcolm through his career. You've had your own career at the same time. Lucy, was your career serendipitous or planned?
1: Well, the last 20 years of it certainly was. So I'll explain how that happened. So I was always fascinated in the way Sydney grew to be what it was when I started to write the book in the 1990s because I remember it as a little kid in the 60s and I was aware of how much it changed so I thought well I don't really understand the forces that were at work so I spent some time writing a book about the history of Sydney and then in the process of that got to know people you know like the the then Lord Mayor Frank Sartor spoke to him and we spoke a few times then he encouraged me to actually go into city politics which is something I had never crossed my mind so that was a serendipitous kind of Accidental move into local or city city government, and then when he went into state parliament, I became the Lord Mayor, and and that was a very very consequential. It was a wonderful thing to be Sydney's first female Lord Mayor. That was a, a great moment, not only for me, but particularly for a lot of women who were so happy that that glass ceiling had finally been smashed. And you know, the the letters and the communication from people from absolute strangers was just extraordinary and then after that I guess I went back into business to some considerable degree and then stayed involved in urban issues through the committee for Sydney which I was involved with best part of you know 15 plus years and then when the Greater Sydney Commission was established I became the inaugural chief commissioner and that was a fantastic opportunity to put everything I'd learned and thought was important about Sydney into practice you know planning framework practice and that was a wonderful opportunity because I guess one of my great beliefs is that when you're looking after something as big as Greater Sydney, it's not just one agency that matters. It's actually every single government agency and the private sector and the community have to come together to make sure their city's as good as it can be, and particularly when you're talking about government agencies and their relationship with local government and, you know, state government leadership. It's so important that everybody collaborates and communicates and don't just think about, their stream or or staying in their lane. And uh, one classic example of that when, you know, I guess the scales fell from my eyes was actually when I was in the town hall I was the Lord Mayor and somebody who was the then chair of Sydney Buses, who was a retired Premier, came to see me and he presented this whole thing of what buses needed. I said, well, that's great, but, you know, what about taxis? What about couriers? What about, you know, everybody else? What about people coming to visit the doctor, you know, in Macquarie Street or something? What about everybody else? Our job is to actually look after everybody and I got that sort of I don't like that mindset where people are only thinking of one thing. You have to think of everything all at once. So that's kind of like my mantra is to have to be very multifocal and bring all the different threads and strings together.
0: Do you think that's a relatively new thing? Like we're more focused now on collaborative effort and creating ecosystems where everybody is thinking of the greater good rather than their little silo. But I feel like that's a relatively new thing. I'm not sure I was taught that when I was at school. I'm 54 and I don't think that was part of what I was taught.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's become increasingly important and there's a much wider understanding of how important that is. And I actually have a kind of like an intuitive Theory that, in fact, women being involved in you know government and the private sector and the public sector et etc actually bring that collaborative mindset into their workplace or to whatever they're doing and you know one thing that 's fascinating to me is that women tend to underrate or underrank their life experience when they're applying for different jobs or moving from one job to another and I think You know, two of the most important things if you're certainly in urban planning or metropolitan planning is actually having that multifocal collaborative mindset. And one way of doing that is actually, you know, like there's nothing to teach you the importance of teamwork and a collaborative mindset than actually being the central chief operations officer for a a busy family. And that typically is what women are. And so it's that kind of family COO role that adapts really nicely to Being a COO in a government
0: agency. But don't you think? I think we're almost a bit embarrassed to talk about the skills we get in a home setting. Correct. You know, whether it's whether you're looking after kids or homeschooling or, you know, working from home or managing the groceries and everything else. Like we are multitasking all the time, but there is a real embarrassment about talking about those skills.
1: Well, exactly. And I think my own view is because a lot of women don't understand how good they are at multitasking and collaborating across the whole operations of the family or, you know, their family unit and other generations of people that they look after or spend time with. So somebody says, have you had any experience in project management? I think most women have in a way until there is a 50-50 balance of home responsibilities, you know, family-based responsibilities. I think that's still the case. And I think it's, but it's a very adaptive skill, to doing other things. And I think smart employers and HR managers understand that instinctively and practically too. But I think there needs to be a wider understanding so that more women can step up to do things for which they are perfectly well-skilled, although they may not imagine that they are.
2: I think, yeah, I think it's the part of the mental load that you can put on your CV. And I think that's, um, you know, mental load is obviously a term that's being used a lot at the moment. And I love Virginia Trioli had a great article a while ago saying the vaccine rollout should have been managed by the netball mums. You know, they would have gotten it sorted really quickly. They would have had clipboards. They would have had it ready to go. And, (laughs) And I think there's probably some truth in that. I do think it's, you know, it's one of those funny things because they are skills, but then I think it also then becomes an issue with You know, we see the issues when women are trying to re-enter the workforce after having a lot of time out of work and it's kind of like the old Ginger Rogers line of I do everything Fred Astaire does but backwards and
0: in heels. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, look, I can identify with that so much. When I had my third child, I took almost 10 years out of my legal career and I was so busy. I worked in the not-for-profit space. I did a master's. I started a PhD. I did so many things. And yet when I came back to law in a bank, the question was always from a headhunter, yeah, but what have you done for the last 10 years? And I was so embarrassed about what I'd done, I couldn't articulate it properly. And now I look back and it's such a rich experience that I had, but we're not taught to be proud, that it's okay to be proud of it. And and I don't think that's just for women. My husband is the home spouse and he's had exactly the same, you know, it's worse I think almost for men because you're not supposed to do it. You're not supposed to stay home yet.
1: Yeah. I agree with that. And uh, I think, yes, I think there's a bit of sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink in the play- playground with the um, when the dad's the primary carer still. Now, it'd be great to think that we could get to a point where that no longer happened. And you know what? Can I just say there has been improvement, but there's a long way to go. So when I was in the early 80s, you know, around that 1980, thinking of starting a family, just got married. The expectation, if you're a sort of like a high-powered lawyer, is to go and have a baby and be back on deck fully as if nothing had happened in six weeks. That was the expectation. Now, the good news is that employers are a lot more enlightened and there's a lot deeper understanding of the complexity of the importance to have flexible careers, etc. But some organisations are better at it than others. And I think The organisations that are actually really good at it are the ones that are led by women often. And, you know, government agencies are often very good at this and big companies are very good at this. But the gender disparity in terms of senior executive leaders and CEOs and gender balance and gender equity generally is actually much lower, say, in ASX 300 companies than it is in ASX 50 companies. So that tells us that everything we need to do to have a fairer, gender equitable society actually happens everywhere, but particularly in the second tier kind of organisations. They're the ones that we really need to concentrate on. We need to make sure that there are executive leadership teams with a high proportion of women in them. So they're the ones that are promoted most often from line management to CEO position. Whereas often you find senior women in functional roles which don't adapt quite as easily to becoming the CEO.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Daisy, I was going to ask, do you think we're doing enough to get women to think like that at the school level, you know, before they enter their university or careers? Like, What else do we have to do to get young girls thinking differently? Because there are still big areas, you know, STEM, engineering, where we're just not, finance, where we're still not getting as many women in those early early parts of the career, or if they are, they drop out really quickly because as Lucy said, the support's not there for them. Do we need to be doing something differently and getting women to think differently about it? So I think
2: the stuff around STEM is really important and I think those numbers are starting to change and we're starting to see girls get into those industries, whether or not they stay in them. Like you say, I think it has a lot to do with the environment they're working in and with the role of mentors for them and about how um, female-friendly those industries are. But to mum's point of women underselling their skills, I think this this happens so much earlier than you think. Like I teach year seven history and I often say, okay, who wants to read out their answers for homework or whatever it is? And almost every student will start by saying, mine's really not very good but. And I always say, look, one day you're going to go for a job at, you know, Boost Juice and you're going to be going for the same job that a boy's going for and he'll be asked what his greatest weakness is and he'll say, you know, it's that he's... He's too collaborative. And you'll say, actually, I have a problem with time management. You know, we need to get women and young girls being confident in their abilities and confident in their own innate skills so that when they are going for jobs, they're selling themselves as best they can. And I think that it's a lot around self-talk and positive self-talk and for young girls, especially teenagers, it does become an issue of being rightly proud of your own achievements and and what you've done versus bragging. And girls often don't want to accidentally fall into the trap of bragging. And so they just don't celebrate their own achievements and they play down their achievements. And I think that it, it starts really early. Why do you think that is? I just think that girls feel like if they talk about having done really well at something, they feel like they're bragging and bragging is considered a negative trait in women.
1: Mm. I was talking about this on a panel the other day, talking about gender deafness. Now, that's something that most women, Annabelle Crabb talks about a lot. She was leading the conversation on the panel. And I actually think that gender deafness is a real issue. But I think whenever there's more than one woman at the table, and this can apply at a dinner table too, right? When a woman says, "Oh, look, I've got a problem or let's talk about this or whatever it is. The men often don't listen and then bring the problem up, bring that same, very same in or the solution to the problem. You know, two paragraphs later, another man stands up and makes exactly the same point and the other men say, Oh, that's, that's really good. Well, I think that women, the other woman who listens to the woman make the point initially or the observation or finds the solution initially has to be give, given credit by the other woman so that the other woman says, Listen, remember Shirley said that five minutes ago? Okay thank you, Shirley, and, you know, put it in the minutes of the meeting if necessary, if it's a formal meeting, right, so that you actually don't, you, you stamp out that gender deafness thing. And I think, I think that needs to happen. I think sometimes whether that happens in friends groups or family groups, you've got to stamp it out quickly.
0: It's really important. Julia Banks talks about that in her book too, the number of tables she was sitting around where that happened and all of a sudden the men pat themselves on the shoulders for the great idea they've had but a woman said it. 25 minutes earlier but nobody listens it worries me Daisy that you acknowledge that that's happening in year seven like at what age are we doing this to the girls or what age are we making them think that they're not good enough or they're not as good uh, I reckon day one so um I remember when
2: my son was born Jack eight years ago everyone said he looked strong and he looked alert but with Alice everyone would say she's cute and chubby or cute, and look at those cheeks. And I think even the adjectives we use to describe kids for girls are are more passive. Now you have many many years of that, and it builds up a, an idea. And it happens where even girls get used to that language around how women should talk about themselves, and you know, not bragging. Or you know, boys are being confident, and girls, you know, boys are being decisive, and girls are being bossy. You know, that kind of stuff. It builds in a socially acceptable language around achievement. And then, you know, you get a young woman and a young man and they get into a relationship and he's used to being able to talk about how well he's doing and she's used to not being able to talk about how well she's doing. And then it gets, you know, even in the microcosm of a couple, it can happen. I had some people say to me, oh, you know, how come you wrote this book? You're not a psychologist. Or someone someone said to me one day, it's like, it made so much sense. Like, I feel like I could have written it. And I said, yeah, but you didn't. And I remember they were quite shocked that I said that, but I'm like, the only reason I wrote this book is I sat down and wrote 30,000 words. Like that's what made it happen. And I recognize that when I say things like that, it can jar some people, but I don't think if a man was saying it, anyone would think twice.
0: I also think, you know, in my career, I think the people I've struggled with the most often have been women. So the women saying to me, oh but that's too aggressive or you know that sounds like you know you're full of yourself we we are awful often to other women like we don't lift other women up enough and say actually you're doing a great job and I think that
2: thing mum was talking about with gender deafness and the idea of that the other woman in the room amplifying and just saying yeah and what she said I'm adding to that and amplifying the women in the room
0: and that's the way it's got to happen Lucy, have you seen a a change or a shift? Do you think it's getting better?
1: I think there's much more awareness. I think over the last 20 years, although there may not be clear results and some indicators are going backwards through the COVID pandemic for reasons we've discussed earlier, because women have taken a a huge uh, load of the economic impact of the pandemic for the reasons we've discussed. I think people's mindsets are changing. And I think you know, what I would like to call enlightened employers, male employers in particular, are actually understanding the importance of including women in leadership teams, et cetera. It's it's so important, leadership teams, and, you know, ultimately for leadership as CEO and when they step into a portfolio career. I think there's a much deeper understanding of it, but I'm not sure it's quite there yet, and that's why at the other end of the spectrum you need, you know, the Chanel Contosses and the Brittany Higgins and the Grace Thames talking about their lived experience as a teenager. So you need to get that whole whole of life perspective of the challenges that women face at the same time as you have enlightened bosses and companies and businesses and government agencies saying, no, it's re- it's a really important cultural priority that we have a lot of women in the leadership team. The New South Wales has done that through the Premier's prim- priorities, which are really good in terms of not only female participation, but also Indigenous First Nations people coming into senior positions. And, and if an organisation prioritises that and makes that a clear objective, then it's much more likely to happen. It might take a while, but it's got to, it's got to happen. But at the other end of the spectrum, I'm worried still that there is um, you know, gender-based inequality and even violence and abuse taken for granted as being normalised, say in boys' schools, for example, then it's going to take a long, a long time for that message to come through. And a lot of the women will have been badly affected by gender based abuse and violence on the way through, which which is not going to make them more resilient. Well, it could make them more resilient, but it's certainly
0: going to not make, make them more confident. You know, it's going to have an effect on them. I think too, you know, and it's even little things, you talk about boys' schools, it's even little things that continue to emphasise those gender norms that we've grown up with. My son goes to a boys' school, really great school, but the speaker on speech day every year is always a man. You know, but imagine if they put a really strong woman in front of the boys, you know, and I think it's addressing all of those structural and unconscious biases the whole way along. So let's talk about the next decade of leadership. Really interested, Lucy, in the work you've done around urbanisation and, frankly, making Sydney a really great place to live. What do you think we need to do for the next decade to make Sydney a safer place, a better place for women, a place that is inclusive of First Nations people, multicultural? You know, there's there's a huge range there, but what should be at the top
1: of the list? Well, again, it's a, it's an exercise in collaboration. So For women to participate fully in the life and economy of a city or anywhere else for that matter, it can be a country town too, they need to feel able to move through it and use it just literally in the sense of walking out the door or out of the car and going somewhere. So that need for a sense of personal safety is really important. So that involves good design, good levels of lighting, all those sorts of, if you like, technical, engineering, spacey kind of issues Um, and I think overlaid on top of the need for safe places and for safe streets so women feel that they can stay at work till 6.30 at night in winter so they're not too scared to walk to the train station, get on the train, go somewhere, that's fundamental Uh, and that depends on good management and good collaboration to make sure there's enough street lighting to make sure women feel safe about getting on and using the train. But overlaid on that is women, you know, if, you know, exercise for women is just as important as it is for men and, and kids. And, and we've learnt very much during this pandemic that there is an unequal distribution of green and open space across Sydney, for example. And so we really need to work on something that the government architect developed 10 years ago now, pretty much. Uh, led by Barbara Schaefer, who used to work in the government architect 's office, this idea of a green grid right across Sydney, so that wherever you live, you know whether it 's in you know sort of in the eastern part of the city or or whether it 's in southwestern or western Sydney, you need to have access to safe walkable places, and there 's not nearly enough equitable distribution of that so that 's a very simple thing we need to do, so women, if they are locked down with kids, can get out for a walk and feel safe getting out for a walk it 's that sense of safety however you use the city, so you can be included in the life of the city when we're allowed to be included and do things together, but also just to do simple things like go for a walk or a run. These things seem really minor, but they're actually very, very major. And that's an exercise in collaboration with government agencies like parks, authorities, but also with with local government to actually build out that green grid. But we've got to focus on that from a social equity point of view for the whole of the population living in Central and Western Sydney, but also from an equity point of view. So we've really got to think about that, not just as a luxury that
0: politicians cut ribbons for just near elections. It's fundamental to livability and equity. And that would mean that we need women and we need those people at the table having those discussions so their voices are heard. And we put that as part of the list of priorities. Daisy, what's your view on what the next 10 years needs to hold? What do we need to do it, at your end where you're spending time with young women and young men? What do we need to do? What are the skills we need to give them for the next decade?
2: So I think at schools we need to be clearer in our conversations around um, respectful relationships, around consent. And I think, you know, obviously Chanel Contos's, um position started that conversation. I think we need to be really clear with how we're talking about it. We need to have conversations around who you trust who you don't around giving kids right responsibilities i think we need to have parents having conversations with their teenagers about these topics that we've often avoided because they're quite uncomfortable and i think we need to lean into uncomfortable conversations and i think we just need to be really clear about the the gender norms we're setting in our families around you know the the chores that boys and girls get around you know, the expectations we have of the different genders, all of that stuff. I think, you know, if we're talking 10 years, if if I start, you know, I already do, but if I talk to my eight and five-year-old around that, in 10 years' time, they're teenagers navigating this.
0: I felt like this conversation went everywhere. We covered the pandemic and the disproportionate effect on women, essential workers, resilience, career paths, and so much more. I loved especially that we discussed how we can recognise the skills that women gain in the home. It's such an important topic, especially for women coming back into the workplace, often at a time when we lack confidence because we've been out of the office environment. I hope it's something that we can focus on more going forward. Two generations of female leaders and the special insights that come with having a mother and daughter on together. So special. I loved the discussion with Lucy and Daisy and I hope that you did too. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Leadership Lessons podcast produced by Alison Ho and made available through the support of Salesforce. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. We look forward to being with you again next week. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's
1: leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.